Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving podcast. Okay, we have a guest this week after last week's solo pod, which I have to say, <laughs> I had a lot of great feedback for. I titled it, well, in fact, when I posted it on socials, I said I was attempting to enrage as many people as possible with that podcast. And there was a slight division of opinion, I guess, but the vast majority of the feedback that I had from that episode was really positive and I think it kind of struck a chord with a lot of people. So yeah, those are thoughts that was covered last week that I'm going to develop a little bit more over the coming weeks and actually what we've got coming up today, even though it was recorded before I recorded last week's episode, gets into quite a lot of those issues too, perhaps in a slightly less explicit way than you might expect if you're listening to these chronologically. But yeah, okay, I didn't destroy the audience in quite the, to quite the extent I, I feared that I might do after I recorded that episode. But um, yeah, so if you haven't listened to it, then go back and check it, episode 76. Right, as mentioned, we have a guest. It's Sean Ronaldo. Now we're breaking the rule, the no journalist rule that we have had unofficially or actually fairly officially. I just haven't, uh, I think I've mentioned it. Maybe I've mentioned it on the Patreon. But um, we're welcoming Sean. He runs a newsletter called First Floor on Substack. It's a newsletter, characterise it like that. But it's just a really, really great resource. He's a really interesting person who I think, yeah, thinks about things, I guess, in a fairly similar way to me, without wanting to be too self-serving. That was the reason why I <laughs> invited him on. But no, it's just a great person to dig into a lot of this stuff with. And he has a book forthcoming. I thought maybe it might just be out already, but... Either way, it's a collection of his writing from the Substack. And if you haven't come across it already, then I would highly recommend checking it out. But we are covering lots of the areas he covers in that book in the conversation today. And the two things do overlap and ask him specifically about it. So yeah, just great to have him on, really. And I think you're going to enjoy this episode, particularly if you enjoyed my hour-long rant 
on episode 76. So yeah, this is episode 77 while we are deep into this podcast. Pretty deep. Anyway, I covered the Patreon on last week's episode. Had a good few people sign up last week as a result of that. But if you are enjoying what we're doing, then head over to patreon.com slash official and get involved. If you can't do that, don't want to do it, can't afford it, all good, that's fine. Leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. That also does help. Join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord if you want to join the conversation about anything at all. If you want to say anything about the show, that's the place to do it. And um, follow the Spotify playlist as well, which there is a link to in the show notes, which covers lots of the music that we talk about on the show. So... Yeah, I think without further delay, here is Sean Ronaldo. Sean Ronaldo, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So, okay, why don't we just start, actually, if you could just give us a, a sort of brief rundown of who you are and your apotted history, perhaps, of your of your career to date. Sure. I've actually been involved in electronic music in some way, shape, or form for more than 20 years now, which is very frightening to say. But I, most people probably know me as a music journalist. Uh, these days, I write a newsletter called First Floor that's been going for the past three and a half years. But before that, I worked at Red Bull Music Academy. I was the editor of Accelerator magazine before that for a number of years. I've also written for Resident Advisor, DJ Mag, Bandcamp, Beatport, most of the electronic music publications that are out there I've written for at one time or another. And then outside of being a journalist, I've also, you know, DJed. I have run a few different record labels. Uh, I had a label called Icy Hot during the first half of the 2010s that was kind of in the bass music zone. And we also did parties in San Francisco for a number of years. So yeah, I have kind of a varied electronic music resume. I've dipped my toes into lots of different things, but most people know me as a music journalist. Right. And you live in Barcelona these days, I believe. Yeah, I moved here in 2015. I actually, I quit Accelerator in 2015 and I knew I wanted to get out of San Francisco. I was born and raised in the Bay Area, but as I'm sure you and everyone else listening knows, San Francisco has changed a lot during the past decade or two with all the tech stuff. And it kind of got to a point where it felt like everyone who lived there worked at Google or Twitter or some other tech startup. And that was not me. And all my friends were moving away. And I was like, you know what, I should get out of here. And I always liked Barcelona. <laughs> And I had been coming and visiting Barcelona for years, both for work, coming for like sonar and stuff like that. And I just always liked it. I spoke Spanish as well fluently. So it was actually a pretty easy move for me. And I've been here eight years now, and uh, I don't think I'm going to be leaving anytime soon. Okay, so this is a slight anomaly of an episode for us because I've had an unofficial ban on, on journalists coming on the show to date, <clears throat> but I'm making an exception for you because actually a lot of the stuff you write about in your newsletter is... Well, it lines up pretty pretty neatly with uh, a lot of the things that we have talked on the show about to date. So, I mean, I'm uh, yeah, I'm making an honourable exception for you. So, a couple of things: you have a book coming out, which is a, a selected selection, if I can put it like that, of 
writing from the newsletter, which I have spent this morning actually going through. A lot of them I'd actually read before, but it kind of brings it all together in, I guess, a neat way. And I want to talk about that in detail. There's a, there's a few things I want to pull out and sort of get to grips with. But but just before we talk about that, <clears throat> I wonder if you could uh, go into a bit of detail about moving to Substack and how it's kind of differed from, you know, working in on these traditional sort of legacy platforms as you as you described. So yeah, t- tell me about um tell me about moving to Substack and how it's been for you sort of generally. I mean, it's honestly worked out way better than I thought it would. I didn't really have the intention of first floor becoming as big as it has. In 2019, that's when Red Bull Music Academy suddenly disappeared. And when I was working there, it had been going for 20 years. And it was funny, it was kind of a place where I think a lot of journalists and other music industry people kind of thought that, not that they would retire there, but basically that they would be able to work at Red Bull Music Academy for as long as they wanted. And it was like this place where we had budgets to do cool projects and everyone was pretty comfortable. And then pretty quickly, it just like there was an announcement like, oh, it's going to be over. And at that point, I had been a journalist for over a decade and I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. And I had already been the editor of a magazine. There aren't that many publications out there. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to take my time, wait and see what comes along. I'll do a little bit of freelancing. And in the meantime, I want to make sure that, you know, I kind of keep my name out there. And I had seen a few friends doing newsletters, like another journalist named Todd Burns, who some people know. He used to be the editor of Resident Advisor. Um, He had started a newsletter and... I just kind of seen it pop up and I was like, oh, this might be an interesting way and I can just write and, you know, the, maybe some people that follow me on Twitter and my friends will read it and maybe some people in the music industry. And I mean, I literally didn't have a plan for it. I figured it would just be temporary until like a new job came along. I think the first one that I sent out literally went to 89 people because I had just, I think I put a tweet up that was like, hey, I'm starting a newsletter. Sign up if you want. It's free. And yeah, the first one went to 89 people. But I committed. I was like, I'm going to do this every week and just kind of see what happens. And within a month or two, like just the subscription numbers started to climb. And, you know, soon I had a couple hundred people and then it got to a thousand people. And then, you know, it kept going from there. And I was like, oh, wow, people are reading this thing. And I think because of the nature of the stuff that I was writing about, people would also like respond to it, um, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively, but like on social media, uh, I feel like the newsletter inadvertently uh, caused many debates on Twitter, especially. And I guess got to a point, I was like, oh, there's an audience for this. And I just kept going. And then once the pandemic hit, Everyone was at home and just had tons of time to read. So I kept going with that. And there was definitely a spike during the pandemic. Like right at the beginning of the pandemic, I wrote this piece 
that was called The Scene Isn't Worth Saving, which is still the most popular thing I've ever written. Like it, I mean, that's a pretty incendiary title for a piece, right? So, <laughs> Yeah, and it was literally two weeks into the pandemic. Everyone was at home and really riled up about the state of the world <laughs> and, you know, sort of charged up with this, like, we're going to change everything when the pandemic's over sort of vibe. Uh, that didn't really pan out, but I think my piece just kind of arrived at a time. But yeah, from there, it just kept going. And eventually, after a year, I turned on paid subscriptions. And I wasn't sure if anyone would actually, you know, start paying to to read this thing. And uh, luckily, people have. And that keeps growing, too. And it's gotten to a point where it's basically my main source of income. I don't want to, like, mislead anyone that, like, this is some, like, lucrative enterprise or anything like that but it's gotten to a point i mean it's definitely like a full-time job level of commitment but in terms of income it brings in enough now that i can be selective about what other work i take on and thankfully i don't have to like chase a lot of other like freelance journalism work which frankly has gotten to a point where it's just, it's almost like a joke, like how little you get paid for the amount of effort, you know, like I've been quoted like, Hey, could you write this 2000 word feature? We'll pay you 200 euros for it. And it's like, that would take me, you know, at least a week to put together. And like, that's below minimum wage. And it's just like, not, not worth my time. I mean, maybe if I was 20 years old and I don't want to sound like full of myself, but I'm like, an adult with like adult level expenses and like, (laughs) uh, you know, I need to be paid like a a normal human being. So that's why I've kind of given up on, on a lot of freelancing, unless it's just something really, really interesting that I want to do. Uh, and most of my journalism efforts now go into first floor and then other work I can do is, you know, more like copywriting and consulting stuff kind of behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, Substack model, I guess, is one that's been, I mean, fairly widely taken up, I think, by journalists across different sectors. I mean, obviously, the the media landscape has been, I think, well, I think it's fair to say it's been hollowed out over a couple of decades at this point. But just just tell me about, you know, moving to subscriptions. I mean, first of all, that's got to have been a bit nerve wracking to start with. But I mean, do you see yourself as part of... uh, I mean, is it sort of part of the the creator economy? Is that what you're part of as, as doing this kind of thing? And then I guess the second half of the question is like, is this something that can replace traditional journalism? I mean, I almost think of what I'm doing as, I mean, music journalism is kind of a misleading term because so many things get thrown under that umbrella. Like being a music journalist can mean reviewing records. It could mean doing actual investigative reporting. It could mean interviewing an artist. Um, But for the most part, especially nowadays, because uh, most outlets don't really have resources to enable this stuff, there's very little reporting and investigation (laughs) that goes on in a lot of journalism. And even in what I do, like, I mean, I'll do some pieces where I do a bit of investigating and looking at numbers and stuff like that. But for the most part, what I'm doing is almost like, 
cultural commentary. It's almost like being like a columnist. Uh, I I think of it like that. And it's definitely, you know, opinion led, you know, I incorporate facts and cite examples, but my opinion is very clear in it. As far as like what I'm doing, I mean, I kind of just think of it as an extension of what I've been doing in some way my whole career. I don't, I guess I'm kind of part of this larger movement, but the funny thing about the creator economy is that it doesn't seem to be working for most people. Well, that was kind of why, yeah, that was kind of why I was asking, right? Because obviously it is working for you, but it can it work at scale for lots of people, I suppose, is, is what I was getting at. I mean, it barely works for me, to be honest. And it's like, I've been doing the newsletter for three and a half years, and it's just within the last you know, year, let's say, that the paid subscriptions are getting to a level where it's like, oh, this is genuinely worth doing, and I should you know, keep moving forward with it. And uh, I don't have any embarrassment in saying that, because there's two tiers. There's a paid tier, and there's a free tier. And less than 10% of the people that are subscribed to the newsletter are paid subscribers. Most people just get the free stuff. I do a free mail out every Thursday. And then if you're a paid subscriber, you get access to the full archive and you get early access to like the longer form essays and interviews and articles that I put together. I mean, everything I publish is up free for a limited period of time, but if you want unlimited access, you pay. So uh, I don't want to be like too hard on the paywall and it's funny it's like anytime you have a paywall it just annoys so many people like people just hate those things and to be honest I don't even like doing it I wish I could just publish everything for free but if I I think if I went to like like a full donation model like hey just support me because you like what I'm doing it's just not as effective human beings just kind of don't work that way unless they're really passionate and I'm not an artist, you know, sure, there are people that like my work, but I don't have a fan base for Sean Ronaldo that rivals that of, you know, the most popular artists or even medium level popular artists in electronic music. So it's not really feasible. And it's funny because in the years that I've been doing this, I've seen other electronic music journalists start newsletters, and most of them have sort of petered out after a few months. And I understand why. It's a ton of work, and at first there's little or no money involved. And sometimes you're you know, putting together a newsletter that might be 1,000 words or 5,000 words, and then you know, if only 100 people are subscribed in those early months, you're like, no one's even reading this. It's like you really have to bear down and commit and just keep putting stuff out and build it slowly. You know, you have to start at zero and build it up from there and it takes time and there's no guarantee that it's going to get to where it needs to get. So, so I think that's why it hasn't really like taken root with a lot of writers especially because there's still a lot of free content available from Resident Advisor, DJ Mag, Mix Mag, all the usual places. So it's like, oh, if I can get this stuff for free or some version of it for free, why would I pay this journalist for their newsletter? Yeah, I suppose the the difference is with the free stuff, it's almost exclusively just very bog standard, barely readable <laughs> content, you know, quote unquote content. Right. And I think that, um, I mean, you're kind of like uh, talking yourself down a little bit there. But I mean, having, I didn't look at the most up to date 
number of subscribers, but it's substantial. Like, yeah, your mailing list is, is certainly substantial. And I don't think there's that many, you know, you talk about mid, mid-tier electronic artists. I don't think there's that many that could post an audience of a similar kind of scale, right? So it's there's there's something, clearly there's something there, right? But just to, I mean, go to the second half of my question, like, does this kind of a model have a future... I mean, you've sort of answered this, but I mean, like, just explicitly, like, does it have a future as a significant part of the sort of, talking about specifically about music writing, like, does this thing work, do you think, as a more significant or a growing part of, um, you know, the way people, like, learn about music and read about it? I think it can work for certain types of writers. For example, Philip Sherburn, who's like arguably the most known electronic music journalist in the world, he just started a newsletter two months ago, something like that. And I know that it's very quickly like built up a following. Like I don't, I think it's still less than mine, but he's obviously not been doing it as long. But I think if someone is an established personality or has an established voice, I think that they can branch out on their own and sort of, you know, build their own journalism fort and ask for donate, you know, ask for subscriptions and potentially make something sustainable. The problem with that is that, you know, there's no real institutional support. Like when I work on my own, I have to do everything. Like I have to do all the research. I have to do all my own fact checking. I have to do all my own copy editing. Uh, I can't, there's no one else for me to talk to, you know, on Slack or in the office and be like, Hey, what do you think of this? Or, Hey, can you give this a read and, you know, give me some pointers. Um, the other thing too, is like, there's no one working for me. So I'm not, passing along my knowledge like about how to write an article, how to investigate something, how to formulate an opinion and express it. I'm not passing that down to any uh, new journalists and stuff like that. So I kind of feel like there's going to be a problem because we're not seeing a lot of new journalists come into the space and last for more than a year or two. Because, you know, at a lot of the established publications, the wages are, are really low. All of their offices are in expensive places like London and even Berlin is expensive now. And it's kind of gotten to a point, I mean, journalism's like anything else in the arts, where unless you come from a privileged or wealthy background and can afford to work at extremely low wages uh, for several years until you can move up the ladder and maybe get like an editorial job somewhere, then it's just not a feasible career path for you. And especially during the pandemic, so many of my peers that were more experienced just left music journalism entirely. You know, Resident Advisor turned over pretty much its entire editorial staff during that time. And all that institutional knowledge just sort of walked out the door and hasn't, you know, hasn't been passed along. And I think that's a a real problem for the future of music journalism, especially at least for anyone who's like interested in like well-written quality content that goes beyond, you know, stuff that works well on Instagram. Yeah. I mean, as you were, yeah, I mean, as you were saying, that absolutely resonates like the the kind of institutional knowledge that gets passed down, which obviously just doesn't happen when there's no like activity going on in those platforms. I mean, like where does that leave these legacy institutions such as they are now, you know, the kind of 
the the big names that have been around since the 90s and RA slightly more recently. Like, where do they go from here, do you think, at a general level? And by the way, the media is something, is, is one of the topics in the book that we'll get to. But just keeping on this for a moment, like, where do those legacy institutions go from here? I mean, to be honest, they've all been having a pretty tough time for at least a decade now, ever since print media died and everything went to digital. Like digital advertising never replaced the revenue of print advertising. So they've sort of just been scrambling and trying out different business models and nothing has really been that sustainable. Um, And what they're doing now, I mean, Resident Advisor was kind of an outlier for a long time because they had ticket sales. um, And that was basically what funded their business. And music journalism was just kind of like, you know, it's almost, I always say it's almost like their business card for the rest, (laughs) for their real business of ticketing. Um, I don't know if they would agree with that. But now that companies like Dice are coming along and undoubtedly are cutting into RA's ticket business, you've seen them pivot to brand partnerships. They opened up a creative studio last year that was publicized in like Adweek magazine. And it's basically an in-house creative studio specifically to work with brands. And RA is not the only publication doing this you know crack magazine has one dj mag and mix mag i believe both have i know mix mag does anyways most publications inside and outside of electronic music now have these sort of dedicated brand teams where some of that involves making branded content that gets published on their sites some of it involves kind of like creative consulting work where they help these brands sort of craft campaigns and connect them with artists and scenes and stuff like that. Almost like a miniature version of what RBMA was doing, but on a more focused, like uh, limited campaign level, as opposed to an ongoing project. And, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in this and maybe that's going to be sustainable. The problem is, is that it's not really journalism. (laughs) And when your financial, uh, when your when your existence depends on catering to brand partnerships and attracting brands, then the way that you formulate content is going to change. It's going to be a lot more about like what attracts social media uh, followers, what pops on Instagram, uh, what's trendy as opposed to what's important. Uh, it just tends to be more frivolous because that's what marketing is. You know, it's marketing work and it's not reporting. It's not journalism. It's not about critique of culture or music or anything like that. So it's just a different business and it's not necessarily, at least for me, a business that I'm particularly interested in. Um, but who knows, maybe, uh, maybe the people that work at these places feel differently. I don't know. I mean, they're also probably just like, you know, holding on to these jobs because there aren't any other jobs in music journalism anymore. Yeah, sure. I mean, you used the word frivolous there and that's as I could, but I mean, additionally to that, I guess it's stuff which is, you know, the most commercially viable, right? Because if you're trying to, you know, interest brands to sell stuff, I mean, you know, this is like the commodification of culture that we, we have discussed on the show a fair bit. And where you've got institutions which perhaps historically 
were it's kind of supportive of the development of culture and then you know using music as a specific example because i think this is true for you know across the arts like music journalism and music writing going back to i guess the heyday of the 70s was really crucial in how music developed i think and then when you've got these things just co-opted into selling stuff for corporations that's i mean it's not great is it <laughs> on paper no, it's it's definitely not great. I do want to say, though, I do think that music journalism of old sometimes is over-idealized. I mean, I was... Oh, I'm sure, yeah. I'm absolutely sure. Yeah, go, like, go, yeah, go on. Yeah. If you go back and read the stuff that was written, let's say in the 90s, you know, the heyday of early electronic music, a lot of it now would be horrifying. And, you know, attitudes about... Um, all sorts of things, you know, gender, sexuality, um, you know, which communities were being represented, you know, a lot of that like language and framework just wasn't even being considered. And I'm sure a lot of this stuff would just be borderline unreadable. You know, it's easy to be like, oh yeah, it was all Simon Reynolds, but Simon Reynolds was an outlier during those times. So there have been improvements made. And I do think that things now are being talked about that for a long time weren't being talked about, especially in terms of what's happening behind the scenes. Like even, you know, I'll, I'm very critical of, of RA and its business models, but at the same time, they do run stories now that have to do with, you know, things like uh, rising DJ fees and how that affects the entire electronic music economy or working class participation in the scene. Now, the way that they engage with these issues is sometimes feels superficial or it sometimes feels like they're just doing it because they notice people are talking about it on social media and they just want to like, you know, kind of get their two cents in and, you know, ride the, the discourse wave, so to speak. But at least these things are sort of like in the ether now of what journalists are talking about. So I do think that's good. It's just a shame that as the window of what we can talk about has shifted, the resources to facilitate that conversation happening in a substantive, meaningful way have kind of disappeared. And lots of times now, you know, journalists are just kind of being thrown into the fire. It'll, you know, people that are, you know, really young, not that experienced writers, definitely not experienced at researching, you know, maybe don't have the sort of historical uh, knowledge to put things into perspective in, in more than like what's happening right now. You know, they're tasked with writing about really complicated, really difficult subject matter sometimes. And then it gets published and everyone's upset because they're like, this is garbage. And it's like, of course it's garbage because it's someone who wasn't equipped to write it and wasn't given the support they need behind the scenes to get it to where it needed to be. Um, one thing I talk about a lot too is like, and this is a, a byproduct of social media, I think, is like lots of times all that matters is like what the headline says. You know, when people are not really making a point to go directly to Resident Advisor's homepage or DJ Mag's homepage or anyone's homepage, most people are encountering this content on Twitter, Instagram, somewhere on social media. All they're seeing lots of times is the photo and the headline and they make a decision, do I like this or not? And then, you know, they hit the like button. Maybe they'll click through and read it, but 
lots of times that doesn't even happen. I mean, as someone who posts content on social media and sees how many likes it gets and then see how many actual clicks that corresponds to, it's a depressingly low figure. And I would think that, you know, I have an audience that supposedly wants to read these things and they're not even clicking it. I can't even imagine how low these rates are at some of the other publications. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, so let's talk about the book. Um, As mentioned, it's a collection of of writing from the the Substack. But my question was, my initial question was, um, was there, is there an overall message you're trying to convey with this collection of, of writing? I wouldn't say there's an overall message. I do think that it provides sort of a a snapshot of where electronic music is at right now and where it's been during the last few years, which I think has been a pretty tumultuous time, or at least a time of like really substantial change. And the pandemic obviously has something to do with that. Although it's funny, I purposely didn't put a lot of pandemic content in the book, just because I feel like one, everyone's kind of sick of talking about the pandemic. And two, you know, these pieces uh, weren't written specifically for the book, they were written for the newsletter. And, you know, during the pandemic, when I was writing, a lot of it was speculative, like, I didn't know when the pandemic was end, I didn't know, I didn't know how things would happen. But I do think we have kind now that the pandemic has wound down or is over, however you want to talk about it. There, it, it was this sort of before and after moment. And it does seem really clear that electronic music culture feels very different now than it did in February 2020. And I think there's a sort of generational shift that got hastened. You know, a lot of people sort of retired from clubbing and even from being an artist maybe earlier than they would have. And then also during the pandemic, a lot of younger people encountered this music in a way that was abnormal compared to the past where they encountered it on live streams and on TikTok and, you know, just watching a million boiler room videos and formulating an idea of what they thought club culture would be. And now they've arrived (laughs) in the club and have definitely altered the dynamic of what it is. And, you know, that's, I don't want to just come on here and be like, oh, the kids are doing it wrong and the kids are terrible. And, you know, we've had a fair bit of that on the show before, (laughs) so... (laughs) I mean, I think, I think the younger generation is doing electronic music in the way that makes the most sense for them. I just think that that way is pretty radically different than it was for you and I. And it's honestly pretty radically different than it was even five years ago. So like, that's one of the main things in the book. Uh, the other sort of main theme is kind of just looking at like the, the music industry and the various ways that it often doesn't work. Uh, you know, there's articles about, you know, the streaming economy and how it specifically impacts electronic music in a negative way. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a whole section on music journalism and uh, that gets into a lot of the, the things I've been talking about with sort of the structural problems in music journalism and how that's affecting the quality of the content. So, I mean, it touches on a lot of different things, but there's not like one overriding theme. I, I guess I'm the overriding theme because it's all very 
personal. It's very much like through my eyes as someone that's been involved in this culture since the since the late 90s. Like I always say in my writing, like I literally went to raves in the 90s. Like I'm not just like pantomiming the 90s, which a lot of people are doing, which is fine. But I was literally there in the 90s and I've seen it. I've seen so many cycles change. So I feel like I have a level of knowledge and like I, I want to lend my perspective to what I think is is going on. Yeah, that's something we have in common. So there was a, a quote that I pulled out of the the forward actually, which Martin wrote. Martin, the the artist who actually listens to the show and is in our Discord. So hello, Martin. Um, the quote was: "Seasoned musicians often forget to question the things that they've been doing for years," and that strikes me as something. Um, <laughs> well, which absolutely resonates, but it sort of also, I think, informs much of the stuff in the book as well, right? Just a kind of reminder to people who have been around that not everything stays the same. And in fact, everything can change quite quickly as it has, as you as you mentioned. Yeah, I totally agree. In fact, I think I quoted that same line from Martin in one of the new introductions because all the essays, even though they've been published over the last few years, I wrote like new introductions for each one just to kind of lend a little context. And I quoted that line from Martin because I thought it was very smart about... Uh, kind of an attitude that shapes a lot of the the discourse, especially sort of the intergenerational discourse. And I mean, this isn't a specific electronic music problem. I think it's every single creative culture has this sort of tension where, you know, there's a generation who establishes things and sort of sets a sort of rules or norms. And then eventually younger people show up and because it's just how younger people are, they're going to push back and they're going to want to do things their own way. And then the older people are going to be like, you guys are doing it wrong or you're ruining this. And, uh, you know, either they leave or deal with it. And then eventually the younger people get older and then a new, another generation shows up and the dynamic repeats itself. So I think it's really easy. And I, I see this a lot happening and I do it myself where like, I see a lot of things happening in electronic music that are being driven by young people right now that I don't like, whether that's, you know, someone playing a 160 BPM, uh, gabber mix of Britney Spears or, you know, especially playing that like during an opening set, like that kind of stuff to me is completely, not what I want out of a club experience. But at the same time, I also look at guys in their 40s and 50s, and it's always guys that are like, you know, angry on Facebook comment sections. And like, they haven't been to a club in three years, or maybe, you know, they went to one festival last year and got mad about all the kids there. And those, that crowd is not helping the situation either. And they're hanging on to something that doesn't exist anymore. And dance music has always been, it's always been somewhat ephemeral. It's never been one thing. It's always changing. And yes, it's changed a lot, especially if you look at where it was in the 80s and 90s to now. It's almost unrecognizable in many ways, but that didn't happen overnight. And it's always been changing. And people have, there's always been people upset about what the quote unquote kids are doing. So for me, I'd rather just try and understand why these things are going on and what's driving them. And even if I don't like the 160 BPM Britney Spears remix, I am curious why someone who's 22 years old likes that 
and why they think it's interesting and why they think it's subversive to play that at Bergine. You know, there is there is information here. Like they're not just doing it to piss everyone off. And I think a lot of those questions aren't being asked. And it's funny because a lot of the the music press doesn't engage with these kinds of questions anymore. Like a lot of the content they're putting out is just, you know, recycling press releases about who has a tour, who has an album, interviewing people when they're in a a cycle for their latest release. Uh, There's not a lot of just sort of like rustling with with questions about like what's going on in the culture what does this mean how does this work where are things going and that's what I'm trying to do with with first floor I mean not every week but with a lot of the pieces that I've written yeah I mean what you would yeah that that last point that you made I think is uh to a large extent driven by the extent to which PR is involved with the um kind of legacy platforms and how much, uh, how many of those pieces that get posted on the likes of RA and, and DJ Mag and the rest of it uh, come directly from PR? I mean, that's not covered at all, actually. I don't think in the in the book. But I mean, something we've talked a little bit about on the show. So just before we dump, dive into the book, what do you think about that? Do you think that's a fair comment? And then what do you think about that influence of of PR? I mean, it's funny. I did an interview in the newsletter a couple months ago with uh, a PR person, like a pretty prominent PR person um, named Ch- uh, Chanel, who works at Dawn. I don't think she'd mind me saying it, but they Dawn works with like a lot of the, you know, quote unquote, like coolest electronic music labels that there are. Like it's too long of a list. And, you know, I think she really shed a lot of light from from that side of the equation on how things work. And again, it's really easy to be like, PR is evil, it's ruining the industry, but it's also, it's serving a a function. And one thing that I think artists and even fans don't realize is like how much music is being released. Like me as a journalist, I receive, I would say conservatively 300 plus promos a week. Like I couldn't listen to all of those. Even if I listened to music 24 hours a day, I could never get through them. And, you know, a lot of that's from PR. Some of it's from labels. Some of it's directly from artists themselves who, you know, DM me on Twitter. And like PR for journalists is a tool to help whittle that down a bit because the good PR agencies you know, sort of curate their their rosters to a degree and like they'll only work with, with good projects. Now, the, the, the downside of that is all those people are paying. You know, it's basically a paywall for access to journalists and that's not ideal. But again, from a utility standpoint for a journalist, it's like, okay, well, I know this PR agency usually works with good so I will at least read their email where, you know, some promos, you know, I just, I can't read everyone's full bio. I can't listen to everyone's records. So, I mean, I don't want to come in here as like the champion of PR in an ideal world. They would not have as much influence as they do, but just given the fact that there's so much music being released, there's not that many outlets left that are even covering electronic music, especially sort of niche releases. It just kind of becomes this like weird hunger games for, for press attention 
that it, that oddly enough doesn't even make that big of a difference i think anymore right right well, let me let me pull you up on that because that's absolutely correct i think and you know going back to the you know the, the issue of, of paying for pr which and i guess that sort of translates in an indirect way to paying for coverage but yeah the the, the cost of paying someone good to pr an ep is such that you know, I think for most EPs, you're not going to make any money out of that EP because I mean, it just it you know it's it's that high, and when you consider like as you said, like you know what difference does it actually make to underlings? What difference does it make to sales in particular? Like certainly from the perspective of running a label, if you pay for uh, the, the PR of an EP, that you know the effect of, of getting good press might be beneficial to that artist in a kind of longer term, but it's almost certainly not going to make a difference to bottom line sales. Now, this is the kind of, uh, kind of back and forth I constantly have with managers and, and, and artists. Like, well, okay, we can pay 400 euros to, you know, to PR your EP, but you know, if you're not going to stick around for the next few, you know, if you're not going to co- commit in some way to our label, then really this, all I'm doing is you know, eliminating any money I might, I might hope to make off this, this release, only for you to kind of like gallop off into the sunset with your increase hypothetically increased dj pieces as a result of this coverage right so this is an issue i think yeah and i know it's something you've talked about on the show before but i mean it's kind of gotten to a point where there's no money to be made in releasing music like for the artists for the labels it seems like the only people making money from releases are maybe mastering engineers and uh, the and the pressing plants because and, and PRs perhaps yeah and the PRs and you know that of course puts a pressure on people to you know be playing live and of course then you have all these producers that shouldn't be DJing or aren't great at DJing but they become DJs because that's the only way to to make money and you know obviously projects like a slice are working to address this issue but yeah it's a real problem and and pr is is part of the equation of why it's a problem okay right um okay let's go through there's a few uh individual pieces that i kind of picked out that i wanted to dig into um from the book so if i could start with okay maybe local scenes don't matter anymore now, the comparative decline, the relative decline of local scenes is something that I talked at length with recently uh, with Shifted. And we were sort of comparing um, the, 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 the scene around Swerve, the drum based scene around Swerve in London in the mid-2000s, which was running kind of concurrently to what was happening at Ford at the time. And, you know, we were got a bit nostalgic about that period. And But the geographical location of those two things was absolutely key. So to tell me what you, what you meant by that uh initially i mean this is sort of throwing back to my own sort of pre-internet days you know uh whether it was electronic music or really any scene i mean even if you look at like hip-hop during the 80s like before everyone was connected via social media and streaming and all these things you know scenes kind of developed in relative isolation and you know different cities would have their own sounds their own labels their own shops their own just way of doing things and that isolation bred a lot of like innovation just because not everything's going to develop exactly the same way and now that everyone is online and everyone can watch a, a DJ set from Berlin DJs on, on Boiler Room or everyone 
is listening to the same streaming playlist that was put together by, you know, Ninja Tune or whoever. Like, it's just kind of made it so that there isn't a need for these local models anymore because people are sort of modeling themselves on these, you know, on a global level. And they're not limited by whoever happens <laughs> to live in their neighborhood. And if you like what someone's doing in Berlin, you can just send them a DM on Twitter. And so, I mean, for me, like as someone who experienced local scenes and remembers that, like I am sad about that. And I do think something has been lost. The other flip side of it is that this does open up possibilities for collaborations that would have never happened before. And the fact that people that live on different continents can swap files and um, bond over the same memes or whatever it may be and sort of form these like scenes and communities that aren't geographically based, there's something beautiful and exciting about that. The problem is, of course, when that's only happening and everyone, it feels sometimes like everyone's mimicking the same things, then everything starts to sound the same. Everyone starts to dress the same. I mean, how long is everyone going to continue dressing like people were dressing at Berghain 10 years ago? Like, it's really crazy, like the impact of, of Berghain on club fashion that just will not go away. Um, stuff like that is a bummer. Um, but it's all, you know, we're in a transition period and we'll see what happens as like people live more and more of their lives online. And I'm hopeful that more interesting things will come out. But yeah, like in terms of local scenes, like, do they matter? Like when you think of, you know, Barcelona or, or Sao Paulo or, or Shanghai, do these places really have their own distinct sounds? Like, I feel like what defines local scenes now might be more just like what the cities are like, what the, you know, the, maybe some of the visual aesthetics and stuff. But uh, the idea of, you know, if you think about the UK, where it was like 20 years ago, Bristol and London were completely different sound worlds to a certain degree. <laughs> like that time is that time is pretty much over. Yeah. And, you know, as you said, this kind of phenomenon correlates pretty strongly with, uh, I think, a decline in, you know, as you put it, innovation in music anyway. And um, it's, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that the two things are linked in, in some way. I mean, like, uh, well, I think the, um, I, well, I think you're, the, the overall kind of thrust of what you just said, I would definitely agree with. I think it's, it's a little, I guess, well, I don't know. I mean, the, the distinction that I would sort of flag up is that, you know, lo small geographically lo located scenes that become significant can actually involve like really quite small numbers of people and um I'm, I'm thinking i mean the one that is most obvious to me is the one that i was involved with which was the early dubstep thing which was really a you know it was maybe 50 people for a few years at, at, at most and then a few sort of peripheral people who would occasionally go down to the, the nights and it strikes me that like obviously things happening online at a sort of general level is is obviously the defining, I guess, social characteristic of the way things happen now. But it it stretches credulity, I think, a little bit in my mind that that would preclude anything like that happening, you know. And but maybe it just does. I don't know. I don't. You know, I'm not sure whether I'm just underestimating the 
like the the ubiquity of online interaction these days what do you think i mean the one thing that i think is interesting is that if you think a lot of the what are the most innovative new sounds that have emerged in electronic music in the last few years you know you think about things like niege niege tapes in you know east africa or you think about gom music coming out of like durban or you think about you know there's so many different variants of, of latin music you know like tra tra tracks in colombia um a lot of these places where there is sort of this like local innovation are places that are sort of outside the typical North American, European cultural network, you know, like London, New York, Berlin kind of run electronic music culture to an, I would say, unfortunate degree where people in these places are so interconnected and basically are like sharing the same perspective about what constitutes quote unquote good music, what's interesting, what's worthy of attention, stuff like that. So there are pockets of, of isolation happening, but you know, as the internet spreads, as, you know, flights, you know, uh, become more accessible to more people and there's more travel going on. I think it's going to continue to decline in terms of the possibility of local innovation, because even though, like you said, like innovation can happen with just a few people in a small scene, like even those people still are going to spend a huge chunk of their day online. It doesn't matter where a 20 year old kid is located. They're going to spend a lot of their day probably on TikTok or social or Instagram or wherever. And uh, that dynamic is is really hard to sort of uh, negate, no matter how interesting what's going on down the street is. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So the next one I had was lots of bangers, not many anthems. And like reading this piece, I was well. It, it struck me that it sort of lines up with what I would. I would broadly characterize as a decline of big pop hits more generally in the past decade or so. And the way that, you know, the, some of the biggest artists in the world who everyone's heard of, quite a lot of people wouldn't be able to even hum a tune of theirs. So tell me about this in your eyes. I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to just the sheer quantity of music being produced. <laughs> like, Every week, there's so many new tracks that, like, even if you find one you really like, you're probably going to get five more in your inbox within the next week or two that sound similar and are are just, you know, a similar level of good. Um, the internet has shortened all of our attention spans, so, you know, things become quote unquote old or quote unquote tired much faster than before. It's crazy if you think about like when a new record drops, whether it's a new single or a new EP or even a new album, how long does it stay in the the cultural conversation these days? It used to be like a big record could be something that people were talking about for months at a time. Uh, and now, you know, it feels like something comes out people talk about it that day and then it's over. Like, it's just so fast. And when that's happening, it's it really makes it difficult for a song to sort of level up 
to that anthem level where DJs in different genres are playing it for months at a time and it becomes this sort of like connective tissue that everyone in, in dance music uh, is a part of. Like, I think in the last few, you know, last year, there was less than, probably less than 10 songs that I would have qualified as like real anthems. And if I really was strict about it, it might have even been less than five. And the most uh, recognizable of them was one that was like the the TikTok hit, the um, interplanetary criminal. And yeah, I was I was just going to mention that. Yeah, Baddest of them all, because you mentioned that a few times during the book, and that is the distinctive feature of that tune, right? Because I mean, on the face of it, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a catchy track, but it's like you know, it's not an obvious candidate for number one single, but what got it there well it was tiktok right so it seems like unless you manage to have that kind of viral moment in this online world then you know you you've got very little chance of like you know breaking through the zeitgeist right yeah and i mean this also ties into another thing that i write about in the book is i think fandom of music across the board is a lot less about music than it used to be. And I know this like will sound like typical old guy perspective, but I mean it in the sense of it used to be that in quote unquote underground music scenes, you know, no one was that famous. Um, and I know underground is like a problematic word these days. And a lot of stuff that gets called underground is not that underground, but anyways, let's just say not mainstream circles. No one was that famous, and lots of times you didn't ever see the artists because they weren't touring that much, and it was just like, I like this tune, I like this sound. Um, But now, because social media is so dominant, I feel like being a fan of a DJ or being a fan of a producer is a lot more connected to your feelings about them as a person. Like, do they represent me? You know, are they from a community that I, that I myself am a part of? Do they have a political viewpoint that resonates with me? Do I just really like how they dress? And if you think about, you know, the role of Instagram now and how important that is to bookings and who makes it big and who, you know, who doesn't, you know, it's just a very different sort of fandom. You know, it, who cares what someone's song sounds like if the only time you're going to hear that song is in a 30 second clip on their Instagram <laughs> video that they posted. And when they're at the club, I mean, DJs, they're not playing their own music most of the time anyways. So who cares if their songs are that good, if you like their persona? And it's it's very much like sort of like a the same dynamic as pop music fandom, you know, like people worship Beyonce or people worship Taylor Smith because uh, Taylor, not Taylor Swift, um, because, you know, they love who they are and what they represent or what they think they represent. Right. And it seems like that dynamic has just trickled all the way down to like even the lowest rungs of electronic music. And as new artists see that model and see it working, they're like, Oh, that's how I get booked is by wearing really cool outfits and by presenting myself in a cool way or by being politically outspoken. Or, and I don't want to say that any of these things are inherently bad. It's just 
different than it used to be. And it's definitely not as much about music um, or it just kind of makes music, you know, one of many factors as opposed to the main factor. But as a result, people don't care as much about like big tunes because that's not why they're showing up anyways. Yeah, I think the observation about pop is is accurate but i would also i mean i would additionally say that if this has been a change there too i think maybe it was ahead of it but you know as, as i mentioned i think there is a, a you know dramatic has been a dramatic decline in like instantly recognizable songs in the uh in the overall landscape and you know if you're going back to you know 20, 20 or 30 years ago um or or longer then those big you know pop superstars all of them had songs which everyone knew right so it was it was absolutely uh you know the image and all the stuff around it was absolutely part of it and the way fans interacted with them and the way fandom you know manifested itself was actually absolutely more than just the music but the music i think was a central arguably the central part of it in a way that it's just not and i've tried to i've tried to make this argument before and you've done it in a, in a much better way than i've ever managed to so so well done for doing that i absolutely agree um but it's um yeah i think this is a problem for music generally and and you're right it's trickled down to an alarming extent to areas which were once i thought to be like you said using that slightly problematic term underground right yeah and i think you're right like if you look at you know to use beyonce as an example again like she had this album renaissance last year it won the grammy i believe for best dance album and i don't none of those songs on that album are ubiquitous like maybe i've heard like i don't even know how much i've heard them because they're just not as big unless you are seeking them out or listening to top 40 radio all day they're just not like leaking into your existence in the same way that pop songs were you know 20 years ago like you know in the late 90s i knew i had memorized so many britney spears songs without ever intentionally listening to her music. It was just inescapable. And nothing feels like that anymore. I mean, the whole music experience has become so fragmented and sort of specialized and, you know, everyone picking their own playlist or whatever it may be. Like, there aren't really the same sort of sort of central filters that there were anymore, whether that was radio or MTV or music magazines that were widely read that were just sort of these, you know, mainstream or mainstream-ish touchstones that were unavoidable and sort of set the, the tone for the entire conversation. Those things have kind of disappeared and now everyone's kind of floating on their own. And uh, it's definitely created a weird dynamic for, for pop music and, you know, non-pop music. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that the same thing is true for movies too. And like the, the nearest we get today, maybe to those kind of like ubiquitous cultural moments are streaming TV series. And, you know, and actually they filter through to music as well. I mean, in the case of uh, Stranger Things, which you mentioned in one of the pieces. I mean... Um, is, I don't know whether um, I don't know whether this is just inevitable, as um, you know, as technology has developed in the way people consume entertainment, if I can put it like that. But I mean, I mean, do, do you agree with that for a start? And then, I mean, where does it go? Do you think? I mean, I definitely agree that 
it seems to be in all kinds of culture. There's also a really interesting disconnect between what I often refer to as like the commenter class, and that's journalists and just people that share opinions on on social media a lot and things like that. Um, what they think is important and what people actually watch. It's such a huge disparity, you know, and you look at, you know, what gets nominated for the Oscars. I mean, this is a very, you know, simple example, but, you know, I like those movies, like, because I come from a certain, you know, social cohort that values, you know, a certain kind of artistry and film and stuff. But yeah, it's a very kind of educated upper middle class kind of viewpoint, right? Coloring a lot of this. Yeah, exactly. And but then some of these movies, you look at like the box office and it's like no one's watching them. And even on TV, you know, Succession, right, just ended. And it was this huge phenomenon, it seemed, at least in the culture. And, you know, I read a million think pieces about Succession and I love the show. But you look at the ratings and it's like they weren't actually that high. Like, way more people watch reruns of, like, The Big Bang Theory than we're watching (laughs) Succession, but because it's considered this, like, lowbrow culture, it's just not talked about and it's not recognized. And, I mean, I think that's part of the issue, too, is, like, there's sort of this, like, stratification between, like, uh, sort of the educated elite i mean gosh i hate to sound like a weird right-wing person because i'm not that (laughs) i'm definitely not that but like there is something to be said about you know people that cluster in urban areas in uh in north america and europe have a certain worldview and then every and then people that aren't in those areas have a different worldview and they're not talking to each other more and more and uh it seems to be a problem like (laughs) it seems like a lot of resentment is building up as a result yeah you've actually there's a piece in in the book relating to this actually which i think we'll just jump through which jump to uh which is the the other in brackets bigger dance music uh, which is i mean I've, I've thought about this so much over the years and and uh, the um the example i always point to is when jamie jones won the ra top 100 djs poll and the the write-up that he was given was so grudging it was it was the most like oh it was the most um reluctant piece of you know congratulations that i think i think i've come across but that was just absolutely a result of that right this kind of like kind of like lower class or what was seen as being lower class kind of tech house guy you know sullying our pages digital pages with his uh you know music that we don't like yeah this is something that has really struck me in recent years especially because the rest of music journalism not electronic music journalism has really been sort of reshaped by what a lot of people call poptimism and you know you look at pitchfork 15 years ago and pitchfork now you know they've really leaned into covering you know beyonce taylor swift like whoever drake like how many drake stories can pitchfork right um and it's this idea that you know music journalism has always been traditionally snobby it was always considered rockist like only rock and sort of rock derivatives were taken seriously and in most music journalism, there's been this idea of like, oh, no, we should consider pop music seriously. We should engage with it seriously, talk about what it means, what it represents. You know, as someone who grew up in independent music cultures, it's not my personal favorite 
trend that's happened, but because uh, it's not necessarily what I want to read about. But what's weird is that in dance music, it hasn't really happened. Like, if you read Resident Advisor, I think I put this in one of the essays, you would think that, you know, Ben UFO is the biggest DJ in the world. Um, you know, Ibiza, it sucks unless DJ Harvey is is playing. Um, Deck Montel is the most important festival on earth. Maybe Sonar, maybe. And, you know, it's just this completely warped, very class-based view of what, quote-unquote, important electronic music is. And then meanwhile, you have, you know, artists like Elenium. Like, I feel like a lot of people listening to this show have probably never even heard of this guy. But he's like an EDM artist, I think he's American. He plays to like literal stadiums in in the US and he'll do tours that are like, you know, 35 dates across the US with tens and thousands tens of thousands of people at every single gig and he's not covered at all. Like he's never been covered in any of the the major uh, electronic music magazines. Yeah, I can I can give you. Let me give you an example of my own experience of this. So I was, a few, must have been ten years ago. I was sat in the Staples Center in Los Angeles watching a basketball game, and the person I was with was my agent at. I was at WME at the time. And he asked me about Cascade. And I was just deep in this RA vortex at the time. And I was like, well, who's Cascade? Like, and he goes, well, he played here last time he played in LA. <laughs> right? It's just like, oh, right, okay. Yeah, like there's a whole world. And I think, you know, I've talked to other journalists about this. And the attitude I usually get is like, oh, those guys don't have anything interesting to say, which, you know, might very well be true. You know, like... I don't know that you know Marshmello has a lot of like important things to say about electronic music artistry. But you know what? I would like someone to try. I would like a serious journalist to interview him and see like is he just some idiot with a ma- with a weird mask on or is there something deeper going on? Like if we can interview regular pop stars in this way and review their work with that level of of scrutiny and critique why can't we do that with dance music and regardless of whether or not like i like it personally i'm interested in the fact that you know thousands of people fly to ibiza to go pay 70 euros to get into you know, Ushuaia or whatever club it may be. And it's like, what is driving that? Like, what is attracting these people? And it's just a weird sort of like lack of intellectual curiosity. And it's strange because this is a huge industry. This is much bigger than everything that's being written about. And it's virtually, it's virtually uncovered. I think Billboard is one of the only places that covers it and that's like an industry magazine so they don't really do any criticism um and even like mix mag and dj mag which used to dabble more in that world they've both moved their editorial away from that stuff to try and like score cool points i guess i my theory of why that's happened is because brands are more interested in what's trendy than than what's popular and if you're chasing brand sponsorships you need to be covering the fashionable new artists that photograph well 
and <laughs> appeal to certain you know demographics with money to spend um that's so interesting yeah it makes makes complete sense because on the one hand yeah it's, it's seemingly you're missing out on this huge market people actually want to listen to those people but yeah if your if your revenue is coming from those places then it totally makes sense Yeah. Although it is strange. It's like you'll look at, you know, a print edition of DJ Mag and they'll put, you know, I don't know, they'll put someone like Shirelle on the cover, which is that's great. But then you look at the ads and it's all like Ibiza uh, residencies. Well, DJ Mag still has their top 100 DJ Mag uh, DJs thing, which is obviously still dominated. I don't know exactly how they do it, but like, yeah, it's still dominated by the, you know, the the kind of people that don't get written about right in, in editorial yeah and it's funny because that poll even though it's like not really like regarded as as noteworthy by anyone with quote-unquote good taste like it means a lot for those artists like it really affects their paycheck and like how much they get booked because those kinds there's a lot more of those kinds of clubs around the world than there are you know small cool 200 cap rooms with function one sound systems yeah yeah absolutely okay right i had two yeah two which were kind of related so down with techno and then who's in charge of the culture and these two things kind of interact with each other um to a large extent i mean <laughs> the, the who's in charge of the culture one i think was um was something you touched on earlier which was that the extent to which previous inhabitants of a cultural space are threatened by sort of kind of new entrants and express their uh, feelings in in not always completely straightforward ways so yeah tell me about these these two things sure i mean it is what I talked about before where with electronic music right now, there's, you know, Gen Z has arrived at the club. Like that's the easiest way to put it. And they just have a different perspective on, on how they want to do things. And people over 30, let's say, are really not happy about it. And it's, you know, everything from, you know, playing pop records or, you know, weird hard style remixes of pop records in the club to uh, just playing straight up top 40 music sometimes to, you know, taking selfies on the dance floor to videoing the DJ with their phone. Um, You know, just lots of different things. What their flyers look like. You know, there's like this rash of like unreadable flyers um, that Gen Z seems to like. You know, there's a lot of of things that are very specific to their aesthetic. And uh, it's not, it's not to my taste. But again, I try and come at it from a point of like understanding what's going on. But I feel like intergenerational tension right now in dance music is particularly high. And I think that's just because it just feels like the pandemic made the shift instead of being gradual, like it always is. It just made it feel like really dramatic. And it's like, whoa, what happened here? Uh, these kids are fucking up the vibe. And let me let me just ask you about that quickly. So, yeah, there's the kind of hypothesis which I think is broadly accurate is that there were lots of older people who dropped out, essentially, um, as a result of, of lockdown, just basically just never came back. And as such, there weren't elder states people in clubs to, I guess, demonstrate how to behave, right? And this is this is the kind of argument which is put forward. I mean, do you, do you think that... I mean, how much do you think that ever really happened, I guess, is, is the question in my head. Because, I mean... I don't know. It's it's not completely 
obvious to me that that was the way things happened, right? I mean, how significant is that in in particular? I think it's one of those things that gets overly idealized. The idea of like elders and shepherding, you know, young club kids into the culture. But I think it kind of happened inadvertently just because, you know, elders who are throwing the parties, DJing the parties, um, you know, just working at the venues, those, those people had, you know, fixed places in the, in the scene and they weren't abandoning them all at, all at once, you know? So when new clubbers came into these environments, that's who they would encounter. That's, they would see like, oh, this is what the DJ is playing. This is what a set's supposed to be like. This is how the, the flow of a night is supposed to be. This is how people are behaving on the dance floor. Like, I don't think it was direct instruction most of the time. I mean, that happens on occasion. But overall, I think it's more just like um, sort of an osmosis. Like you show up in the club and... Yeah, kind of demonstrative. Yeah, I guess, and you yeah. copy everyone. But I think the pandemic just created so many holes in the scene that just kind of got plugged in by people that wouldn't have gotten those opportunities otherwise. And that combined with the fact that a lot of the the new people who started coming to the club, they aren't coming in with like a blank slate that the way they would have if they hadn't spent two years watching boiler room videos and live streams and TikToks formulating this idea of what club culture is, which you know, again, I don't want to say that that idea is invalid, but it's just not as substantive as actually going to a club and spending time there. And people sort of created this fantasy of like, oh, being at the club means dressing in a certain way. Like, oh, I got to buy like a fetish harness and, you know, I got to like have dance moves that I can, you know, look good on video, um, you know, and having my phone out is totally normalized, you know, these kinds of things like wouldn't have been as permissible (laughs) or it wouldn't have been as permitted if they had had a more sort of organic uh, introduction to the culture. Yeah. Okay. So this kind of relates to a question I've had um, over the last few weeks about, I guess, barriers to entry, generally speaking. And this is something which is quite wide ranging, but this, what you've just what you were just describing is sort of part of the same thing, which is to say that, you know, as, as a new entrant into a scene, like pre- previously you had to, I guess, gain the acceptance of the, the incumbents. And I guess there's, I mean, that can go one of two ways, right? That can either be restrictive and in some ways, obviously it is restrictive and intentionally restrictive, but also it can, I guess, be directing in a more positive kind of a way. So, I mean, I think we agree that, um, you know, things that might seem objectively bad <laughs> to you or I, you shouldn't characterize them as objective, right, in their, in their negativity, right? Because I think this is just a dangerous way to look at things generally. But I mean, do you think that barriers to entry more generally can be positive and you think they're necessary for good stuff to happen? I mean, one thing that I say a lot specifically in reference to like, let's say making music, like as, you know, digital production software has become cheaper and more widely available around the world. Like we've gotten to a point where anyone can make dance music. And 
So the best thing about this is that anyone can make dance music. The worst thing about it is that anyone can make dance music. <laughs> like it, it's a double-edged sword. And I think that applies to the culture across the board. Like there used to be sort of like a, a secret society vibe to electronic music, or at least the more quote unquote underground aspects of electronic music. You had to be introduced to it. You had to figure out, like, if you wanted to buy the records, someone had to clue you into, like, what kind of stores are and teach you about, you know, vinyl and what a white label is. And you had to figure out, there's just so many codes to crack and you had to work for it. And, you know, that cultivated a certain kind of, of fandom. And I think a sort of level of dedication and community that, you know, shaped the culture. The downside is it wasn't available to everyone. And now those barriers have come down and anyone can get in. It's a lot easier to find people for the most part have an idea of, of what happens at a rave or at a club and they have a picture in their head. Like even, you know, suburban moms, if you say the word rave to them, they know it's like, oh, a DJ, dark room, lights, those kinds of things. So it's it's good that more people can participate. I do think the downside is like, we kind of are moving towards this like gatekeeperless society or like, you know, everyone's sort of like down with gatekeepers, but gatekeepers can be a can be a force for good. Like, yeah, I absolutely agree. Like, yeah, totally. Yeah. In in a perfect world, gatekeepers are a filter for quality. Now, of course, everyone comes. You know, any gatekeeper is going to have their own biases, and you know, there's a lot of like structural inequality that factors into that that fucks things up, and that's a problem. But at the same time, like, it is good sometimes to have someone at the door being like, no, this isn't right. This is not how it's supposed to work. Like, hey, this culture has been working this way for for two decades. Like, you should know about this history before you start doing this. Um, and that that's kind of gone by the wayside a lot. And people just sort of jump in and, and do whatever the hell they want. And sometimes that leads to great new things that wouldn't have happened otherwise. But sometimes it leads to some really messy shit. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, we live in a, a world, especially one with social media that incentivizes conflict and incentivizes um, people, you know, shitting on other people essentially um we see the messy shit way more than we need to and it's really easy to look especially from afar and just be like oh dance music is a fucking mess right now like this is terrible but there's still like of those 300 records i get every week like I still, there's still good ones like i still get good music all the time there's still good djs out there you just have to kind of know where to look before and you have to sort of be your own gatekeeper. And it's a bummer, I think, for those of us who remember when there were like sort of professional gatekeepers doing some of this filtering for us. And it feels like they've kind of dropped the ball or just shifted their focus elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I broadly agree. In fact, I, t- I totally agree with all of that. Um, right. Okay, let's talk about the scene not being worth saving, shall we? So there's a couple of specific things within this, obviously, because it was kind of a wide-ranging piece. But 
Um, why don't we talk about streaming platforms in particular? And I think the the piece you wrote, it might no, there was a I think it was a piece just about pulling a music off Spotify, which predated the scene not worth saving piece. And you picked out Bandcamp, and it was definitely prior to the the takeover of Bandcamp. So um, let's just talk about Bandcamp for a minute. Like, has your views on that changed in the intervening periods? Perhaps informed by the takeover. I mean, I will say I've been pleasantly surprised by the lack of changes at Bandcamp. Uh, I'm still in a sort of wait and see mode. Lots of times when a platform or a company gets taken over by a bigger entity, it usually, there's a lag time before you start to see the wheels fall off. But so far, so good. I'm not a huge fan of uh, of Bandcamp Fridays. I will say that. Uh, I thought it was great when it started and it was like... Yeah, they don't need to be doing it now. Yeah, it sure. was like a very positive gesture like and a real gesture to help artists during a time when all of their income had evaporated and it was very telling that Bandcamp was taking this step while it felt like Spotify and and the rest were not doing anything even though they're you know way bigger operations um so yeah like I think Bandcamp is is still a force for good or at least an it, its influence is good I like that it's has a DIY aspect to it um and it does just feel more you know obviously there's other places to buy electronic music digitally but it does feel like the one place where an artist can just you know upload their music and you know try and talk talk directly to fans um it is a bit of a filterless place which you know as i was talking about is a problem and it i think a lot of artists sort of over over release or release too much music and maybe it's because they're short on on money and they just are hoping to get a little cash infusion or maybe it's just they just don't really care and it's like oh i'd rather just keep my name out there so i gotta release something new who cares if it's like the best thing i've ever done um so there there are good and bad parts about it but i'll take Bandcamp over Spotify or Apple Music or the rest of them any day of the week. Um, At the same time, Bandcamp relative to those companies is still such a small niche operation. And I think that the economy for purchasing files has a real time limit on it because people under 25, even people under 30 have almost like never been music fans in a world where it was necessary to own your music. And as soon as, the, as they get older and become, you know, they're already sort of like the dominant consumers in the music space. Like they're not going to buy music. Like why would they, why would they want to or need to? So uh, it kind of feels like streaming is the future, which is very unfortunate because the streaming model is like irreparably <laughs> broken and seems to be really screwing everything up. Yeah. Okay. I and mean, this sort of relates to, you know, what you we were saying previously about how music is sort of, I mean, of a secondary importance increasingly. So um, yeah, the stream model in particular um, do, do you still think that electronic artists should disengage with streaming entirely? I would love if that happened, but at the same time, I've kind of reached a point with streaming. And I, there's an essay 
in the book about this. Actually, there's three streaming essays, and they were published at three different times, and you can kind of see my perspective evolving. When I first wrote about it, I was like really full of like fire and like streaming's bad. We need to stop this. And it just felt like the sort of why streaming is a problem narrative. It was sort of just getting off the ground. There was only a few people really writing about it. And the dominant narrative was still Spotify saved the music industry. And so I was like, that's bullshit. Like, this is what's really going on. But over the last three years... Let me, let me, st- let me stop you there. Can you just uh, elaborate that point slightly? On why it's bullshit that Spotify saved the music industry? Yeah. Oh, that's a very big question. But um, I mean, the narrative boil it, is... Boil it down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the big idea is like people stopped buying music when, um, when illegal downloading took over and everyone was just getting it for free. And Spotify showed up and basically... Uh, made people start paying for access to music again and it's been profitable and that's trickled down to artists and has kept the music industry afloat because no one's buying records anymore. Now, that's that's the story that was told. What's not told is that the artists actually benefiting from that model are extremely concentrated at the top in a way. It's basically eliminated the middle class of artists that could, you know, release an album once every year or two, go on tour and eke out like a modest living. It's kind of like, unless you're... Sure, I mean, I guess there's a difference between saving the major labels (laughs) and saving, I wish to say the music industry, and saving music, right? (laughs) I suppose those are two different things. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, it's it was very good for the major labels. The major labels are arguably more profitable now than they were at the height of the CD era. But it hasn't been good for the music ecosystem. Uh, and it's made being a musician a much more difficult or a, a less economically feasible path unless you're just a superstar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sorry, sorry, I, I interrupted you. Your view has developed. Dot, dot, dot. Oh, okay. So, I mean, what I was saying is like over the past, let's say, three years, it's hard to think of a company that's gotten worse press than Spotify. Like, Spotify has basically just been, you know, Daniel Eck, the head of Spotify, is just like a running joke, you know, calling him a a nerd, you know, making fun of what he looks like. It's just all commonplace. Um, Anytime Spotify does anything, there's a rash of articles about why they're exploitative, how little they pay per stream. the news about Spotify and it's and what it's doing is it's out there. Like I don't think anyone's under the illusion that like that artists are getting a good deal from Spotify, but their customer base has gone up. Like it's like the wor- no matter how bad the news is, people are still using it. In fact, more people are signing up for it. Yeah, the truth is it's a good service to the consumer. That's I think the reality. Yeah. And it's cheap. It's like a cheap service and it offers a utility. Like, that's the thing. It's like, it offers access to, I mean, they, you know, it gives the illusion of having access to everything, but it access to a whole lot of music 
in many cases for free. And it's like the fact that they have this like ad supported free tier is almost, it's criminal <laughs> almost on their part. But um, yeah. So anyways, my attitude is like the consumer knows this and they're buying it anyway. It's the same way as like, you know, no one thinks McDonald's is a healthy meal, no matter how many salads they promote. Um, but people keep going there anyway. So like, is it really that constructive to get mad about it or expect or expect that it's going to just suddenly collapse. Like this is something consumers clearly want. The genie's out of the bottle. It's not we're not going to go to a non-streaming uh music economy anytime soon. So I think it would be a very tall order for me to expect any artist to pull all their music off Spotify on principle alone. I mean if they want to do that, I think they should. But I also understand that some people are like, look, like I don't like Spotify, but that's where listeners are. So I'll just put my music there and it's just going to be a write off. Like, I'm not going to think I'm going to think about it as promotion. I'm not going to think about it as income. Um, that's a totally understandable, reasonable way to go. Um, I will say, though, I have talked to some artists like I talked to and this is a while ago, but I talked to Barker, who runs a leisure system. And he told me that like years ago, he took all of the label's music off of Spotify. And he said that he wound up earning more money by having the music only on Bandcamp and, and other sort of like digital sales outlets. So I do think that there is something to consider. Like if you're a small artist and you're earning literally pennies from Spotify, uh, and you're not really seeing the in, the economic return, you should ask yourself, like, does it make sense for my music to be there? And if you the only benefit is is promotional, then you're sort of buying into sort of the like the exposure economy idea, which I think most people now have agreed is kind of exploitative and lots of times doesn't pan out as well as it should. Yeah, this is it's sort of like the um the Prince model, right? Where he you know stopped releasing on majors and just put out stuff himself and you know cleaned up essentially and you know if, if you do have an audience um who are in any way interested in you then yeah it doesn't it's not a big surprise to me that that barker would have um would have managed that you know because i think if you like i said if you if you've got an audience then you know you might as well direct them to the places that where they they have the opportunity to spend money on you because you know, a, lot, a lot of the time people are more than happy to do that you know you just got to put it in front of them yeah exactly and if they have an option, I mean, people are, you know, human beings are very predictable. If they have an option to listen to your music for free, they're probably going to do, they're probably going to do that, especially if they're only a casual fan or if they're just curious. And especially if they're on the platform anyway, you know, that's, that's just how they listen to music and it's, you know, it's just there, then, you know, why wouldn't they? Yeah. So, you know, if you think about, you know, in the before times, pre-streaming, it was like even checking out an artist, you either had to wait for it to come on the radio, wait for their video to come on MTV, or you had to actually go down and buy the record. And if you bought the record, you know, how many, I'm sure you had the experience. I bought so many albums when I was a teenager that then I got home and was like, oh, I don't actually like this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. like that doesn't happen that doesn't happen anymore. And, um, you know, from a consumer perspective, that's, that's great, you know, because your satisfaction as a, as a listener might be higher, but 
for an artist's perspective, it's been pretty disastrous for a lot of people because there's this whole try before you buy or just try forever and never buy. And uh, that is not sustainable in the long run. Sure. And it also just reinforces that, you know, just the oversupply issue, right? It enables it and I guess encourages that kind of throwaway consumption, right, of, of music generally. Of course. And if you look at Spotify or any of these platforms, a standalone single is presented the exact same way as a triple album. It's just an icon. So if exposure is your main interest or self-promotion is your main interest, you can just put out 10 singles in a year and it will look like you're like an established artist with a huge catalog. Uh, Meanwhile, someone slaves over an album for five years and it goes up there and, you know, people listen to it for 15 seconds and say, this sucks. Um, So it's a very weird dynamic. And I think a lot of artists haven't adjusted their practice to this sort of reality and you know they get up they get understandably upset about it and um so that's why i say like if it's not working for you and how you want to do your your practice as a musician and an artist like you don't have to engage with it that i think that's more my lesson now instead of like doing some waving the flag rally and cry everyone pull your music off spotify i'm more in the camp of like why don't you look at the costs and benefits of this being of being on this platform and you might be surprised about how little it's doing for you in relation to the way that you want to work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the the next one I had I mean it's actually not in the uh the scene of saving uh, heading but it kind of comes out as kind of I guess the other two maybe planks of releasing music as um you know, quote unquote underground artists these days. And that's vinyl. There's an article about the end of vinyl and then also the dwindling power of the online DJ mix. So, I mean, the vinyl one um, (laughs) is funny. It it caught my attention because we used to be a, well, for many years, we were an exclusively vinyl label and we've gradually sort of ramped it down. But in the last few months, we've had the most successful vinyl release we've had for many years. And it kind of renewed well i mean obviously when you have something that does well it kind of renews renews your faith in something right but um tell me about the uh yeah tell me about your thoughts on the end of vinyl on vinyl generally well i wrote that piece when there was that very highly publicized fire at a plant in southern california that was basically responsible for making lacquer discs which is like a very key part of the vinyl pressing uh, process, not to get too nerdy about it. But at the time, there was this rash of articles of people saying like, uh, vinyl's fucked, like this is going to screw up production for the whole world because there was only two places in the whole world making these lacquer discs. Um, And I just used it as an opportunity to be like, kind of, it's the same theme over and over again, just asking the question like, does this really make sense for everyone? Like, why are we still making vinyl? It feels to me, and this is someone, you know, I grew up buying vinyl. I used to have thousands and thousands of records uh, in my home. And so I have this sentimental attachment to it. But from a functionality perspective, it's just not how people listen to music anymore. Of course, there are some people who, you know, sit down and put a record on and listen to it at home. But 
you know, DJs don't really play vinyl anymore. There's some, but most DJs are using <laughs> USBs. Um, people listen to streaming platforms. So it's like, it's just kind of become this weird totem lots of times that people have to put on their shelf. And, you know, I understand that you want to have something physical or you want to buy something because you know you're supporting the artist. But just from a pure utility standpoint, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And given that, does it make sense for everyone to still be putting all this energy into vinyl? And to be honest, especially post-pandemic, I'm seeing a lot more labels that are just almost completely digital because it got to a point where you could, if you're only doing 200 or 300 records because you can't expect to sell more than that, if you can even reach that point, even if you sell out, lots of times you wouldn't be breaking even anymore. So it was just this exercise that people were doing because that's how electronic music has always been. But it didn't make sense. It was like DJs didn't need the records for playing. Uh, people that just were fans of the music didn't need them for listening. So why were the labels like bending over backwards and bankrupting themselves to make these things when they didn't need to be? Like that was the point I was making. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be an absolutist. I'm not saying no one should make vinyl. It's just one of those things of artists and labels should feel free to ask themselves, does vinyl make sense for me and my fans? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely doesn't make sense if you're thinking about it in the same way that we did in the 90s, right? I mean, you're you know totally correct. Like almost no DJs play vinyl uh, these days. And there's absolutely no need for the vast majority of the 300 promos you get every week to be pressed to vinyl, right? <laughs> and um, and obviously there's there's many more releases that come out, and it's like you know, the vast majority of this stuff has no business on that format. I think like the I think the I think where it can be useful, and I'm thinking you know about how how artists making this kind of stuff um, can I guess add a bit of value and create a bit of um, something extra for the people who are really into their stuff is to um, it's in various different ways like create you know, as you said you know, tang- tangible objects and not just objects I think the the idea of quote unquote experiences and you know doing special do, making a real effort with events and all that kind of stuff I think I think vinyl can kind of fit into that framework uh, in a way which I think can be really useful in the in the kind of you know the, the quest of trying to make a living doing this kind of stuff right so I, I think I think you're right in the sense that it it absolutely has no real value in the way that it once did but I think it can be important again but in a, in a different way you know I think in a in a way which is much more I guess directed at people who are really really serious about you know about your music which the vast majority of people who are who hear it aren't clearly but yeah, it can really, as I said, be useful in the in the kind of yeah in the in the journey, you know, or the achieving the objective of uh, you know putting food on the table at the end of the day. For sure. And for example, a couple months ago, I interviewed Ron Morelli from Lies in in the newsletter, uh, which if you haven't come across it, anyone listening, it's a very entertaining read. He has a lot of let's just say opinions about dance music, but. You know, I talked to him specifically about this issue and like Lies is still very vinyl based label. They put all their releases on vinyl and there is something to be said for the idea that if something is coming out on vinyl, 
it does mean that it's sort of past a certain level of should I invest money in this? Like it, it putting something on vinyl does communicate that someone thought it was good enough to invest, you know, a thousand, whatever, a thousand dollars or whatever it costs, sometimes more, um, to get the records pressed up. And that means something, at least to certain audiences. Um, I think it's just, again, there's no one size fits all for all of dance music. And just because vinyl has been important historically, it doesn't mean that everyone needs to do it. And Lies is a very particular label with a very particular audience. And there are other labels in that vein. But, you know, if I'm 23 years old, starting, a, you know, UK garage revival label and doing really well on Bandcamp, like, I can probably get by without vinyl records, like, uh, and you'll be fine. Like, so everyone has to ask these questions for themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely shouldn't be seen as a sort of rite of passage. And this is a an argument I regularly have with artists, and particularly new artists, right, who think that um, their music doesn't really exist unless it's coming out on vinyl, which is obviously nonsense, right? And and <laughs> this is a crazy mindset. But but like I said, I think like you know, if you, if you you know if you build up uh, the demand, I think that's the key thing. Like you know, if it's if it's you know, if you make a make a track that that is genuinely loved, or you know, you you build a relationship with a group, a, a big enough group of people who will engage on that level, then I think it can be be really useful. I think it can you know, differentiate in a way that you know, sticking out music digitally, as we've been discussing, just the pure volume of it means that it's just you know, like saying something, you know, and sort of making making a statement almost. Is so difficult, right? And you know, I think it it can it can enable that to an extent. Um, the second thing was the dwindling power of the online DJ mix. Now, I think basically every DJ will know what you're talking about here, and have, will have been frustrated at some stage having spent ages doing a DJ mix and only for no one to listen to it. So, tell me about this. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, but I mean. If you look at in the early 2010s, I mean, DJ mixes have been around, you know, forever. Mix, you know, there was cassette mixes and then there was CD mixes. They used to even come on the cover of, of UK dance magazines. Um, and then there was these, you know, vaunted mix series, you know, Fabric and uh, DJ Kicks. And, you know, some of these are still around, but there used to be so many more. But as soon as it all went online... And that mostly started happening in the late 2000s, early 2010s. Um, it just became a lot easier to publish a DJ mix. And the online ones also didn't need to be licensed. Um, and then once SoundCloud and MixCloud came around, you didn't even have to have your own server to host it anymore. You could just put it up and you know start a mix series, you know, yourself at home and the good once again the good side of this is like it opened up the possibility of doing a published dj mix to more djs than ever before it gave a platform for people from scenes and sounds that you you know lots of times were ignored by tastemakers to sort of showcase what they were doing but it's just another oversaturation thing you know I think about when I was at Accelerator, I curated the podcast series there. 
And in the early 2010s, like an artist doing an accelerator podcast was a big deal. It was like something they would plan as sort of like a career milestone because it would move. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I planned my one meticulously. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was like it would move the needle. It would be like, oh, Accelerate because there was only like three or four major online mix series at that time. You know, there was Accelerator, RA, Fact, you know, a few others, but there wasn't that many. And it was kind of like a throwback to the time of when there was only three TV channels in the, you know, in the 60s. Um, you know, there's only a few podcasts and everyone was listening to them. But I think once we got to the SoundCloud, MixCloud era and there was hundreds of mix series, no one's listening to all of these. And then also the major ones, you know, RA and, and the rest, they're at the point where they're like on mix 700 in their series. And, you know, when you get to that point, yes, you get to platform more people, but you also start to run out of like name artists that are going to really draw people in. So it just, there's so many factors that make an online mix feel like less and less of an event and more and more of like just another piece of content that you take a screenshot of and post on Instagram. Like that seems to be the major benefit of an online mix now is like you do a post about, hey, I did a mix. Maybe you do like a few clips of it. Like that's how, how bad things have gotten in terms of the need to self-promote. And no one listens to it, but everyone likes it, you know, especially if the person like looks good and it's a video, it's a video mix on, um, you know, boiler room or whatever it may be. So yeah, it just doesn't feel like a very important thing anymore. Um, but artists are still like asked to do this stuff all the time. The other thing too, is like, this is work. Like artists are being asked to do work. And most of these mix series, the vast majority are not compensating for for this work that's being provided it's a yet another example of like the exposure economy like oh do this and then people will see it and you'll maybe get more gigs but if no one's listening to it and you're not getting more gigs why are you still doing all this work for free to help you know a media brand especially you know yeah i mean that that um that question about getting paid is one i guess which is which is tricky right because as you said like um you know, there's there's so much of it. Like it's been devalued to such an extent that I mean, why? I mean, well, why should you get paid for something which is so so ubiquitous? And the same is true for you know, for much of this stuff. And uh, you know, I think that um, there's a lot of handwringing that goes on about you know, quote unquote, fairly paying artists. And you know, it kind of comes into the UBI conversation and and you know, much of the stuff kind of peripheral to this and and into that kind of AI thing. You know, the, the idea that you know, our time was going to be freed up for, you know, quite creative pursuits. But I mean, I've said I really struggle with this. To me, it's like, if you're going to get paid for something, then it's got to fit into some kind of market somewhere, right? I think. Do you agree with that? Yeah, of course. And unfortunately, the model that was created for these things was, oh, these mixes are free. So there's no budget to pay the the artists and of course it's just a promotional activity but especially when it's coming from media brands like and i mean i say this with regret as someone that worked at accelerator which was a commercial operation not a super lucrative one to be very clear but you know it was a commercial business and we got you know hundreds of artists they're still getting they're still doing that 
podcast series that I used to curate. And none of those artists are getting paid, but Accelerator is theoretically getting money. I mean, now, I mean, Accelerator is almost dead now or it's barely active. But if you look at Resident Advisor or uh, DJ Mag or Mix Mag or whoever it may be, um, you know, they're working with giant brands. They're working with, um, you know, Nike and Spotify and alcohol companies and doing these partnership deals. And what enables them to get these deals is the fact that they have this cultural cachet that's being provided by the fact that they are covering, you know, cool, trendy artists that appeal to the demographic that these brands want. So yes, there's no budget for DJ mixes, but in the grand scheme of things, these DJ mixes are just part of the, you know, they go into the marketing deck when they're pitching for brand partnerships. So, I mean, artists should consider that, um, I don't expect that anyone's going to start paying artists for DJ mixes anytime soon, but it is something to consider about, is this worth it for me or not? And is this something I want to contribute to? Mm. Yeah. I mean, this kind of question of saturation, um, which uh, the last kind of three things has come out of that, right? I mean, as a, as a result of, of this, just kind of avalanche of, of music. Now this definitely feed well this it feeds into uh a really interesting piece actually and this is the kind of last one that i had pulled out which is raving as folk art and i guess <laughs> i guess where you we've reached a kind of point where anyone can participate in a a similar way to well how folk art works right by definition so perhaps you can yeah just go over this at a broad level so a lot of this is rooted in sort of a frustration that I have with dance and electronic music is that it's always marketed as something that's like futuristic, like futurism is wired in to the identity of dance music. I mean, and right. And it's so not right. It's the most conservative backward looking scene you can possibly imagine. Yeah. And it's like, but if you go back to, you know, Cybertron, you know, he was reading like Alvin Toffler books and, you know, Detroit Techno had all these like ideas of sci-fi and, you know, Afrofuturism, those kinds of things. And that sort of vibe has just never really left in terms of how dance music pictures itself, how it markets itself. But then you look at the music that's being put out and like so many records are just something that could have been released 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, people fetishize gear that is three decades old. You know, there's so many models that are just repeated ad nauseum. And as that happens, it's become pretty clear that like, oh, wait, this isn't a very futuristic groundbreaking culture. There's a lot more innovation happening, arguably in like reggaeton than there is in in techno, for instance. And, uh, you know, that isn't necessarily bad, but it just re- requires a reevaluation of what electronic music is and where it's at in its history. And almost every genre s- kind of goes through this cycle. You think about jazz, hip-hop, punk rock, like, they kind of, they're new, they break the rules, they go through all these different mutations, and then they kind of just get hit a, sort of like a wall, where it's like, 
this is what this genre is. Certain aesthetics get locked into place sort of in the wider consciousness of, of society, not necessarily amongst the heads, but just amongst like regular people. And again, like raving now is at a point where like suburban moms know what a rave is. They know what a DJ is and they might think about it in a sense of like a guy in a bad V-neck shirt, like doing like wiki wikis, you know, sounds, you know, but like there's an idea of what it is. And once that happens, it just, it ceases to be like sort of a, a place of innovation and it becomes more of like a folk tradition and it becomes more about like, hey, uh, dance music is something that happens and there's a DJ and you go to parties and it lasts all night and it's dark and the music's loud and there's value in that and it can still be fun and it can still be rewarding, but like, let's not pretend that this is still some groundbreaking force that is changing, you know, human perception or, you know, leading us into some future when a lot of it is just recycled sounds and tropes that are decades old at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think you can reach that kind of legacy culture milestone without actually becoming a kind of folk type art form that I've been thinking about. I mean, just thinking about classical music, actually, you know, just the, um, the level of technical skill required to perform classical music means that it's just difficult to, to get into it. You know, it's like it's there's, there's, there's real barriers to entry there. And I'm you know, similarly with stuff like, I don't know, I'm thinking about like prog rock or whatever. So this is not easy stuff to perform. And it's not easy stuff to kind of it's replicate that kind of a um, that kind of a sound. But I think with dance music in particular, you know, as we as we have said, you know, a couple of times during the conversation, like it's, it's something that really anyone can do and anyone can go raving and anyone. It, I mean, that's almost like the ethos of it is that you know it's it's DIY. Everyone kind of muck in and and have a go kind of thing. But that almost by definition is going to translate eventually once you reach that kind of legacy point that it does kind of acquire these kind of folk characteristics, right? Yeah. And what's, I think, interesting, and this goes back to sort of the generational conversation, is that the way that a lot of younger generations are sort of rebelling against that is instead of like innovating by creating their own new takes on the sound or whatever, they're like doing this experimenting with with pop music and, you know, reggaeton or trap music or whatever, you know, sounds that seem more commercial, but traditionally don't belong in the dance music space. And that's the way of like, sort of like sticking it to the man and, and putting their own spin on the culture. And it's not my favorite development, but it is interesting that sort of like the creative, let's say creative stagnation of dance music that has sort of prompted this response, you know, where kids are turning to, you know, I hate to use Britney Spears as an example again, but you, turning to Britney Spears remixes to, you know, rebel against the system. It's very strange, especially for anyone of a certain age. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as, as you were saying that, I mean, one of the things that we've talked about a fair bit on the show, um, and this is, I guess, the last question, um, which relates to what you were just saying about how kids are kind of looking for other stuff to 
you know, make their point, as it were. The, the idea of selling out, which I think you refer to in one of the pieces that kind of reached its peak in the 90s and has now sort of dissipated almost to nothing and also relates to, I think, the way that brands have kind of encroached on this space more generally without too much pushback from a general audience. Like, I mean, how do you see that as, an, as a sort of phenomenon generally in the space of electronic music, which was previously fair, well, commonly in music was fairly hostile during the 90s, but like seemingly is just kind of, it's just not a thing anymore. And, and I, I guess particularly with the example, using the example of brands that we've, we've talked about. I mean, speaking as someone who went to raves in the 90s <laughs> again, <laughs> I don't like it personally. I, I don't like it. But this is something that is much bigger than electronic music. I think the idea of selling out in all aspects of culture has almost completely lost its its currency. And I think when I talk to people that are in their 20s, it just doesn't make sense. And I think a lot of it has to do with the divide between you know, mainstream and quote unquote underground has kind of been eliminated. Some of that is streaming. You know, if you want to listen to, I don't know, a Code 9 record and you want to listen to a Backstreet Boys song on Spotify, they're presented the exact same way. So if you are 15 years old and you're listening to music on Spotify, why would you perceive those things as different? And you're not listening to the radio and you're not watching MTV. Like this is how you're being fed music. So you're not going to have, and you know, Spotify and other streaming platforms, they're almost like a context free environment. (laughs) You know, it's like just all you have is the music and that's part of it too. And another thing is it's just, you know, been a bit of like a slippery slope, like, you know, slowly brands started getting into this space, Um, you know, Red Bull Music Academy, which I thought was a very positive project overall. I was very proud to be a part of it. But there's no question that it laid the groundwork for brands getting into sort of cultural scenes and spaces. And the fact that I think a lot of the work was so good, it gave people permission to be like, oh, I don't want to work with brands, but RBMA is okay. And now, yeah, that's so true, isn't it? Let me let me just jump in there because you're absolutely right. I mean, I remember when it first started, a lot of people were very sniffy about it for that reason, right? Because there was still that kind of mentality that you shouldn't get involved with these sorts of things. But but it was good, and they did great work. You're right. You know, it was it was really really positive. I think generally speaking, and it kind of yeah. I mean, I guess it made it okay. You know, even while RBMA was still going, I saw so many other brands basically try and launch their own RBMA. And usually they lasted about six months, but they'd do similar things and they'd set up talks and they'd get artists together for workshops. And then, you know, once RBMA disappeared, it was just open, (laughs) open season. And especially with artists not making money from selling music and touring becoming more and more difficult artists need to survive. And one of the easiest ways to survive is to get brand money or to play branded gigs. Or if you're a promoter, one of the easiest ways to make your party viable is to get a brand sponsor involved and, you know, let them put like a Doc Martens banner up or whatever it may be. And 
I don't blame anyone for doing this. Everyone's just trying to make it and capitalism makes surviving as an artist exceedingly difficult. But at the same time, it's profoundly affected the culture and it's made you know, the idea of like underground or that liking electron part of liking electronic music culture means positioning yourself against the mainstream. Like for me, when I got into it, that was part of the appeal is like, this is not for everyone. And now the message is, oh no, it it is for everyone, you know? And uh, that's okay. Like that's, there's a lot of culture that's like that, but Um, that's just not personally what I want to participate in. And of course, like, I don't want to set up barriers to be clear, like based on like race or class or sexuality or anything like that. Like that is not the defining of who should get in, but I'm totally fine with setting barriers of like, you can't get in unless you feel a certain way about commerce in music and what uh, what is important in artistic expression and what it constitutes uh, integrity and doesn't like those things mean a lot to me personally. And I know they mean a lot to other people. It's just that people like people like me, and I assume people like you were no longer in charge of dance music culture and the industry. It's gotten too big. It's too profitable. And People, you know, all the new people, they have a different idea of how to run things and they're taking, they're taking the culture in a different direction. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) So basically we need more gatekeepers, essentially. (laughs) I mean, maybe, I mean, I hate to end the conversation on such like a bummer note. (laughs) Well, no, I'm going to say that I was going to, I was going to say, give me a last, I've got a last one, which is give me your optimistic counterpoint to this. Where are we going? That could be good. I think the counterpoint is that we don't know what's going to happen yet. And a lot of these models that are problematic now are not sustainable in the long run. Like, I don't think the music press is going to be able to keep stumbling along forever. And, you know, they're turning to brand partnerships now, but I think once brands figure out that people aren't really reading these websites, they might look elsewhere um streaming like unless you know at some point artists are going to get fed up or the major labels are going to change their mind or something will have to give there so my hope is that as these tensions mount they could give way to new working methods I mean, the cynic in me says those working methods will just be different forms of exploitative. But I would like to hope that more positive or constructive things could come out of it. And in terms of the culture, too, like every generation has people making bad art, but every generation also has people making amazing art. And even though, like in the newsletter, people tend to, like, I think I have a reputation as like this, like, very critical voice who's really negative but every week i highlight like 10 or 15 songs that i really like i interview artists whose work i really respect there's still lots of really interesting valuable art and activity going on in electronic music we just have to know where to look for it and uh you know it takes a little more work than before, but that's okay. Like it took a lot of work when I got involved in the, in the nineties. So maybe I just need to get back to that mentality. 
Yeah, right, absolutely. Well, listen, Sean, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for your time. It's been great. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun. Yeah, that was Sean Reynaldo covering quite a few of the bits and pieces that I talked about last week on episode 76. But he, yeah, is someone who I think, whose thoughts overlap to a certain extent, as we discovered and as we dug into a bit in the conversation today. And um, I think it was just uh, quite an enjoyable one. I really enjoyed having that conversation anyway. I wish I could have more of these. It's quite a shallow pool of people, actually, to invite on to really dig into this stuff in that kind of detail. If you've got any suggestions, notwithstanding the unofficial (laughs) no journalist rule, (laughs) I realize a lot of those people are going to be people who write about music and that is a bit of a problem, bit of a problem. But yeah, if you've got any specific suggestions of people who would be interesting talking about this stuff, then yeah, join us in the Discord, hotfushercorners.com slash Discord and join with suggestions there. Otherwise, you can get me on Twitter, of course, or Threads, Instagram, at ScubaOfficial, all that stuff. And by the way, Threads, hmm, okay. I think Twitter could be done. And wouldn't be the end of the world at all, in my opinion. Anyway, anyway, I think we're done here. This is over two hours. So I mentioned the Patreon at the top. That would be really nice of you if you're not doing so already. Patreon.com slash scuba official. Or I also mentioned the Discord. Follow the Spotify playlist. And I will see you back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Let's go, wow.